Hello, everyone. You are listening to the New Discourses podcast. I'm James Lindsay. For a long time, I've been talking about this one academic paper that posits that women's studies is a virus. And you think this is something that maybe Peter Boghossian, Helen Pluckrose, and I wrote for the Grievance Studies Affair. No, turns out it's not. Um, it's something that they wrote for themselves. So for a long time, I've been trying to make the case that critical theories work like viruses. How does that work? Just to real simply, they find certain ways, certain proteins, if you will, since we're all familiar with this with the pandemic, where they can attach to an institution whether that's a kind of physical institution or, you know, like the Department of Justice or whether that's kind of an idea uh, in a sense of, you know, some societal norm or whatever they attach to it. And then they're able to inject their DNA into that. And then they're able to subvert and change the DNA inside of that institutional cell to become critical theory. And then that cell, once infected, only produces more critical theory it doesn't produce any, if it's a company, it doesn't produce what it used to produce as a company. If it's an institution, it doesn't do what it used to do. It only reproduces the woke ideology once it gets inside. And then if it destroys that cell, eventually that cell will run out of resources and die. It might be propped up for a long time by somebody giving it resources, but eventually it's going to die. And then those infectious agents that it's been producing are all along leaking out and trying to infect other institutions that they have the ability to get into. And this sounds like the kind of rhetoric that you really, really shouldn't be attaching to people. Like it's somehow, you know, the kind of dehumanizing thing that, uh, you know, you might associate with literally Hitler. And that's not something that anybody should be doing. I don't think that that's appropriate it's not the goal, but when they're using this as something they describe for the, themselves as, you're now in kind of a different category. You're in a different circumstance. They are describing themselves as a virus. And so there's this paper that was written in 2016, Women's Studies as a Virus, that I've wanted to read for a long time, but I didn't think it was necessarily appropriate to read the whole thing. I didn't think it was necessary. I did a podcast kind of about this before that was a little bit more abstract. But I think it's time to just read through this whole paper. So without further introduction, let's just jump into this. This was this appeared in the uh, journal Heneros, multidisciplinary journal of gender studies, published by Hypatia Press, which maybe is Hypatia Press, but I don't want to make I don't want to give off the misimpression that it's Hypatia, the Journal of Feminist Philosophy. It's a different thing entirely. This is the this is the publisher is Hypatia Press or Hypatia or whatever. The journal is actually called Heneros, the multi multidisciplinary journal of gender studies. This isn't a particularly big or famous journal by any means, um, but the authors of this paper are not insignificant authors. They actually have written other papers. Uh, I don't know the, the depth or scope of how important they are as women's studies or gender studies researchers. I just know that we came across their names a number of times during the Grievance Studies Affair. So they weren't weird fringe names. The authors are Brianne Foz, F-A-H-S, and Michael Carger, both from Arizona State University. And so this was published in uh, 2016, like I said. The title of the paper is Women's Studies as a Virus, Institutional Feminism, and the Projection of Danger. It's kind of a shocking thing. <laughs> they published this. So let's read through it. 
We'll start with the abstract, make sense of what we're reading. Abstract, because women's studies radically challenges social hierarchies and lacks a unified identity and canon of thought, it often negotiates a precarious position within the modern corporatized university. So let me pause for a second about this. The points that they actually make in Wokeland, and you see this a lot in critical pedagogy, uh, the critical theory of education, about the modern corporatized university, they actually have some pretty reasonable ground to stand on that the university has corporatized itself and made problems for itself. But they're actually, rather than taking on this problem, which is a legitimate problem in and of itself, they use it as another lever to do their stupid activism that's absolutely insane. You can read this. I read a book the other day, as a matter of fact, by Henry Giroux, kind of the father of critical pedagogy, the man who brought critical pedagogy to the to the to North America most significantly. And he talks about the neoliberal education model, the corporatization of the university over and over and over and over again. And he's not wrong to talk about it. He's just wrong how he talks about it. And that's a huge thing that keeps coming up here within kind of woke activism is that they aren't all wrong about the problems that they point at, especially when they talk about this kind of neoliberal or whatever, or even neoconservative problem. They are actually quite astute about the problems associated with neoliberalism, which I would say is a similar parasitic phenomenon like um, like wokeness is. In fact, the, the way I conceive of the problem in big picture right now is that there are two kind of psychopathic parasitic ideologies that are competing with one another while feeding off of society. And it's very much like aliens versus predator or alien versus predator. They're like sucking off of each other. They're sucking off of society. They're trying to take over and they're all run by lunatics who um, are at kind of endless war with one another. And that kind of contextualizes that essay Helen and I wrote in 2017, if you haven't read it, where we wrote a manifesto against the enemies of modernity. Well, we said that there's a problem on the right, although I don't think we diagnosed it very well, and there's a problem on the left, and I think we diagnosed that one very well. And um, then there's this huge middle of normal people who don't want either one of these problems, and I think that that's where this lives. So when they criticize the corporatized university, they're actually talking about a real problem. The university did adopt a corporate model. They did favor student services over all else. That's why I left the university in 2010. That was the main driving reason why I didn't really want to continue teaching in the university was that they had to prioritize student retention over other things, which then enables the whiniest two to 5% of students who are activists to be able to bend the institutional policy because they can't bear to lose those troublemakers. Uh, it's a, it's a very weak position to put yourself in, to not be able to lose anybody. And the corporatization of the university that followed largely uh, student loan underwriting, uh, in the 1990s under Bill Clinton had a lot to do with that. So the modern corporatized university, which they would see as not, and the woke would see the, the, the university is not fulfilling its mission, which is correct, but they believe that the university's mission is to train activists, which is wrong also. So when I say they're right about the problem, but wrong about how it's a problem, that's what I'm talking about. Like Henry Giroux does this again and again in his book on critical pedagogy, and that's the title of the book on critical pedagogy. And what he does is he says, you know, well, there's all this neoliberal blah, 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 and it's a huge problem. And he's right. But then he's like, because it stops us from ch- training people to be revolutionary activists. No, 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 no. That's not what, that's not what the actual problem is. Right. So it's like, let's replace this idiotic problem with our own idiotic problem. And lunatics are running the asylum, but it's like, there's kind of like two lunatic asylums at once, but we're distracted from the paper. So let's get back to the abstract here. So um, 
At the same time, they write, women's studies offers, by virtue of its interdisciplinary critical, critical, something nobody would catch on unless you realize a critical theory is so relevant, by virtue of its interdisciplinary, critical, and, no kidding, it says this, infectious structure, cutting-edge perspectives and goals that set it apart from more traditional fields. This paper theorizes that one future pedagogical priority of women's studies is to train students not only to master a body of knowledge, but also as to, also to serve as symbolic viruses that infect, unsettle, and disrupt traditional and entrenched fields. In this essay, we first posit how the metaphor of the virus in part exemplifies an ideal feminist pedagogy, and then we investigate how both women's studies and the spread of actual viruses, for example, Ebola, HIV, produce similar kinds of emotional responses in others. By looking at triviality, mockery, panic, and anger that women's studies as a field elicits, we conclude by outlining the stakes of framing women's studies as an infectious, insurrectional, and potentially dangerous field of study. In doing so, we frame two new priorities for women's studies, training male students as viruses, and embracing negative stereotypes of feminist professors as important future directions for the potentially liberatory aspects of the field. So if you've heard me talk about liberationism under neo-Marxism, here's your liberatory aspects, right? So this is how they describe themselves, though, comparing themselves favorably to viruses like Ebola and HIV. Saying that the virus is an ideal model and metaphor for themselves. That one of their goals is to train students as viruses, specifically to go infect other fields in order to achieve liberation. Why? Because we're talking about a critical infectious structure. That's how they describe themselves. To serve as symbolic viruses that infect, unsettle, and disrupt traditional and entrenched fields. In this essay, we first posit how the metaphor of the virus in part exemplifies an ideal feminist pedagogy. It's almost unbelievable to me that they would write this. But here we are. Here we are. They write this without the slightest amount of self-awareness of what they're actually saying. They're proud of the fact that they're comparing themselves to viruses, including Ebola and HIV. And you're going to see in the paper that they're proud of comparing themselves to cancer. Like, feminism is cancer. Like, literally, they wrote a paper saying, yeah, exactly, we are. And it's unbelievable to me that this was written and published because this is kind of how clueless... The people who are operating in these fields are that they would compare themselves to literal infectious agents that in that insert themselves through some kind of a manipulation. So the way a virus works is that there's some vulnerability, there's some receptor on your cell that the virus exploits. The virus attaches to some receptor and is able to inject its its RNA or DNA strand into the cell and get it into the cell's nucleus to start using the cell's machinery to produce viruses instead of doing the normal operations of the cell to completely subvert and steal the purposes of the machinery of some existing thing and then to use it to reproduce itself even though it's going to destroy it, even though it's not what that thing exists to do. And this is what they hold up as an ideal for themselves. Figure out ways to exploit those places in the existing body, the existing institution that they can use to get in, inject their DNA subversively inside. This is Antonio Gramsci's idea of getting inside and creating a counter-hegemony has a long historical track behind it, and then use that to remake the institution itself to do 
woke bidding to reproduce woke ideology to produce more woke activists who are going to go infect other cells when they get out and then to let the thing die to use all of its resources to produce itself and only itself whatever that institution was meant to do if it's a church to minister to people to serve God if it's a business to produce whatever it is that business does to serve its customers and its shareholders if it's a government institution to do what it is the government is actually supposed to do for people in that kind of an institution no the goal is now going to be to insert woke ideology into this through activists who have taken it up to subvert the internal working of that institution and change it completely to do something different which is to produce wokery until the thing dies to produce as much as much wokery as much ideological propagandizing and indoctrination as possible and to create as many new activists as possible using the resources of the thing it infected then to get that out into the world to do it again in the next institution this is why you see things like communist countries burn through all of their all of their built-up capital of every kind whether that's kind of social capital, whether it's brand capital or equity, whether that's financial or resource-based capital, they burn through it as they just reproduce the ideology until everything collapses. And this will be the same with woke, and here's why. Because that's how viruses work. The virus has no duty to its host. And it's an ideal feminist pedagogy. The ideal metaphor for what they're trying to do, what the woke is about. So to the paper itself, and we'll hear some repetition because usually that's how abstracts are written. The question of what women's studies is and what women's studies does continues to haunt the field in numerous ways. Because women's studies originated from radical and frankly activist origins that threatened conventional power imbalances, it exists permanently on the margins of academia. Yeah, because it's not freaking academic work. It's not scholarship. It exists permanently, they, they whine, on the margins of academia and struggles to maintain a coherent identity and a consistent and agreed upon canon of thought. Program and department chairs, along with women's studies faculty members, consistently negotiate numerous aspects of women's studies and its relationship to the university. This includes everything from the creation of new programs, faculty lines, content of courses, the name of programs, e.g. women and gender studies, women, gender, and sexuality studies, gender studies, and so on. Practices of assessment, curricular priorities, and the specific source of knowledge women's studies students should learn during their tenure as undergraduate and graduate students. Consequently, the field of women's studies often negotiates in precarious ways its relationship to the highly corporatized and patriarchal university. So it's not, it's not that what they're actually doing is crap, right? It's that it's a corporate university model and a patriarchal university model that's keeping out their garbage. And that's actually the problem, is that the university itself has a hegemonic structure based in capitalism, uh, corporate capitalism, which then attaches to this slightly true thing. Here's your receptor site. It attaches to that slightly true thing that there is a corporatization problem in the universities. Patriarchal, I mean, this is just feminism being feminism. It sees patriarchy everywhere. Um, so women's studies, they write, it struggles in short with a permanent identity crisis engendered not only by its relationship to other disciplines and fields, but also by its continued questioning of its own priorities and existence. At the same time, women's studies offers, by virtue of its interdisciplinary, critical, and infectious structure, cutting-edge perspectives and goals to differentiate itself from more traditional academic fields. Women's studies has wholly embraced its humanism and its social science leanings. It occupies a place across fields, within fields, and has thoroughly and somewhat chaotically attached itself 
to numerous partnerships, cross-listings, and interdisciplinary projects across the university. Women's studies programs transverse disciplinary boundaries and often exist permanently on the margins of academia, citing bell hooks here. <laughs> of course, citing whiny feminists who are doing crappy, sloppy work and complaining all the time, and then I'm on the margins, I'm on the margins. You're doing garbage. That's why you're on the margins. But anyway, taking topics as diverse as feminist science studies, which is basically um, garbage. It's to claim that science sucks because it's not feminism. Critical intersectionality, embodiment, trans studies, and new materialisms. Materialism is probably almost certainly a euphemism for socialisms. So it was Marxism, really, dialectical materialism, but we got to, dialectical materialism didn't work, so we have new materialisms. With its ever-changing names and alliances, women's studies has become even more difficult to locate and place within the corporatized university, particularly as it prioritizes emotional course content rather than scholarship, critical stances towards sexism rather than real ones, Intense classroom dynamics, like abusing students, and the fusion between theory and prax practice. That's called praxis. That's a word Marx invented. Marx, in fact, was the progenitor of the idea that theory and practice should be wedded into a single thing called praxis. They've just not named the Marxist term here in the paper. This paper argues that one future pedagogical priority of women's studies is to train students not only to master a body of knowledge, but also to serve as symbolic viruses that infect, unsettle, and disrupt traditional and entrenched fields. We explore how the metaphor of the virus, its structure, and its potential for unsettling and disrupting the everyday processes of its host exemplifies a compelling model for feminist pedagogy, minus, of course, the killing of the host. <laughs> Put that in parentheses, by the way. You're like, wait a minute, there are reasons to think that what we're saying is horrific. But no, of course, that's not true. They want to keep the host, host alive as long as they can, though, so they can use its resources through a model that probably is going to just continue to milk resources out of the state or anybody they can, they can leverage into giving them resources and burn it all down. So they don't really want the host to die because the host is their machine to, to push the ideology. This is exactly what you see, for example, where uh, you, countries like like Cuba, socialist or communist countries, where, you know, they milked off of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union collapsed, they couldn't milk off of that anymore, they have nothing of their own, they can't produce, and so then what do they do? They move in and they start milking off the oil in Venezuela, and now they've destroyed Venezuela, and now they're trying to milk off of Colombia. So they don't want to kill the host, they just want to continue to cause the host to figure out new ways to, to create new lines of resources that they can drain. So really, they do want to kill the host, but in the end, that's how it goes. But they think, of course, kind of in utopia land that there's infinite resources that they couldn't possibly exhaust. So they don't want to kill the host faster than they mean to, is a better way to put that. We then turn to the affective response, sorry, experiences. Affective here with an A means emotional, by the way. We then turn to the affective experiences of viruses and the sorts of emotional responses they typically produce in both individuals and in the public at large. It'll be timely since we just went through this stupid pandemic. We specifically investigate how both women's studies and the spread of, an, of actual viruses, e.g. Ebola, HIV, produce similar kinds of emotional responses by looking at triviality or the trivialization of women's experiences, mockery, panic, and anger that women's studies as a field produces and elicits. We explore the stakes of framing women's studies as an infectious and potentially dangerous field of study.
So hold up. This tri triv trivialization of women's experiences. Let's hold up here. This is something you see in this critical theory crap all the time. You heard it from Derek Bell in critical race theory, for example. They do garbage work, and then they complain that when people don't pay attention to their garbage critical theory, that they're actually attacking the experiences of the identity group underneath it. So women's studies is garbage. The critical studies of women and feminism and whatever else is garbage. It's garbage. It's all garbage. So then people are like, this is garbage. You're whining. You're misinterpreting things. You're misconstruing things. And then they say, you're, you're ignoring women's experiences. You're trivializing our experiences because they don't know the difference between rigorous work, which they then say is a patriarchal or a masculine, masculinist or a white supremacist thing to claim anyway. They don't know the difference between rigorous work and what they're doing. They, they don't have the slightest idea. They're methodologically so poor, they have absolutely no idea the difference between real things and fake things. So they say, oh, it's our experiences. You can't trivialize our experiences. And because, again, attachment sites where viruses latch on, there's tiny little bits of truth to that. And it does happen on occasion. It does happen some of the time. It is relevant some of the time. And it's one of those caring things. Nobody wants to trivialize somebody's bad experience. Nobody wants to be the person who's like, that thing that you're bothered by or hurt by is irrelevant. Go away. But it is irrelevant in most research. It actually is. Derek Bell did the same thing. He got hired by Harvard Law as the first African-American tenured professor. People started to immediately point out that his work had taken some weird turn. It became more and more critical. It literally became the, the beginnings of critical race theory. People said that his work was not rigorous any longer, and he said that it was basically ignoring black voices. Same trick. You see it all the time. If you don't agree with them, you're trivializing our magic Gnostic perspective rooted in our identity. Gnosticism has no place in scholarship, though. If you want to be a Gnostic for whatever faith-based reasons you want to be a Gnostic, good for you. It has no place in rigorous scholarship. And this is what this is. It's an attempt to bring that Gnosticism in. You can hear more about that when I talk about Hegel in my very long podcast about Hegel I did recently here on New Discourses. Okay, so in doing so, they write, we conclude by framing two new priorities for women's studies, training male students as viruses and embracing negative stereotypes of feminist professors as important future directions for the field. Important future directions for the field, training male students as viruses. That's one of them and embracing negative stereotypes so that you can use those to complain, of course. Okay, new section, the birth of women's studies. At its inception in the early 1970s, women's studies was designed as a bridge between feminist activism, consciousness raising, that's Marxism, by the way, and university scholarship practice and pedagogy. So women's studies was designed as a way to create a bridge or maybe a viral insertion of feminist activism and Marxist-style consciousness-raising into university scholarship practice and pedagogy. Let's just be clear about what it actually says there. Cornell University held the first women's studies class in 1969, followed one year later by the founding of the first women's studies program at San Diego State University and SUNY Buffalo. Catherine Stimson, 1971, noted that prior to the existence of women's studies programs, omissions, distortions, and trivialization of women's issues dominated the academy. Now, prior to 1969, there is probably some serious truth to that, but a lot has happened since then. And this paper was written in 2016, so this is another common trick. Problem existed 50 years ago, therefore problem persists now. 
give us more power and money. That's the most common grift. That's why they're always talking about historical injustices, because they can always dip back into those and then they can claim, despite the fact, for example, that right now women are actually dominating in university and education. They're absolutely dominating in almost every, not every, but nearly every field in educational attainment, even up to the graduate level, postgraduate level, professional level, especially in fields like medicine. They're absolutely dominating. They can still claim that, oh, historically, this was a problem. Prior to the existence of women's studies programs, omissions, distortions, and trivialization of women's issues dominated the academy. So they also have the false implication of causation here. Something that happened at the same, two things happened. We had women's studies come into the university. Things got better. Two things that happened. Oh, they happened next to each other. Must be that women's studies caused the improvement, but that's not necessarily the case. As a matter of fact, there's no reason to believe it's the case. Larger, broad changes in society that maybe drew some off of the women's studies, but probably were more driven by the heavy liberal activism that was going on to create women's equality in the professional world and in the home had a lot more to do with it. Changing those attitudes had a lot more to do with it than creating goofball activist departments that are building a bridge between Marxist feminism and its activism and university practice. So correlation does not imply causation, but of course they're methodologically poor, so they aren't going to do that. They're just going to say, "Uh uh-huh, we brought this thing in, things got better, we must be responsible. And then they brag on themselves. Early women's studies programs sought to inject feminism into the university, to inhabit spaces where women were previously excluded, and to showcase not only the rigorous academic scholarship of women, but also train younger generations of women in feminist theory and political activism, which... It's hilarious to me that you're going to put the words rigorous academic scholarship right next to feminist theory and political activism, even to the degree that feminist theory might sometimes be rigorous academic scholarship, but it's led by a political agenda. There's no way that you can possibly say political activism and rigorous academic scholarship. Those two things are anathema. They actually do not mix. When you have political activism, you have a goal in mind. You have a political goal. You know the truth. Rigorous academic scholarship does not know the truth. It's looking for it by definition. That observation in another form was courtesy of my friend Heather Hying, who you might um, have heard talk before. She's quite good. Um, on this particular kind of point. Linda Gordon, 1975, they write, called women's studies, quote, the academic wing of the women's liberation movement. The academic wing of the women's liberation movement. So it's a liberation movement. It's rooted in Marxism and neo-Marxism. It's not at rigorous scholarship. It's vigorous activism with a particular goal, which is liberationism, which is a crackpot utopian ideology. The academic wing. In other words, they do things, as I can tell you from the Grievance Studies Affair, that look like scholarship while they're actually meaning to be activism. In line with this, Susan Sheridan, 2012, claimed that women's studies drew from the women's liberation movement for inspiration, just as it influenced feminist activism in return. So you have a revolving door between scholars and activists, which was exactly what Herbert Marcuse was trying to set up in the 1960s after he read Gramsci. It's exactly what Rudy Deutschke was talking about after he read Gramsci or watched Mao employ something that looks very much like Gramsci with his long march to the institutions. The goal was to get inside of education because if you can get inside education, then you influence all the next generation of future professionals, like a virus even, to go out and infect other fields. Aiming to establish itself 
As a discipline in its own right, women's studies spawned its own academic journals, the National Women's Studies Association and other feminist professional organizations, for example, Association for Women in Psychology, and advocated for university resources devoted to this new and emerging field. Again, we have to pause to talk about what's actually going on, how this thing works. They create the false appearance of rigor through creating this bogus scholarship. They use that to leverage to create organizations that are then going to look established. They're going to look real. They're going to look meaningful. They're going to look like, you know, think tanks or whatever that have some kind of institutional gravitas. They're creating a sham institution in parallel to a real institution to create a counter hegemonic, uh, hegemonic, I mean, insertion into real institutions. And then they're going to advocate. They're going to give professors awards. They're going to legitimize themselves alongside real disciplines and then slowly insert themselves into the university. They spawned their own academic journals. They created their own professional associations and professional organizations like Association for Women in Psychology. They advocated then once they established that for university resources to be devoted to this new and emerging field. This has happened again and again and again. Every critical study of blah, blah, blah probably pulled something like this. These efforts were quite successful as women's studies grew from a small handful of programs in 1970 to over 600 programs by the mid-1990s. In 1990, Emory University established the first PhD in women's studies. Currently, there are at least a dozen standalone women's studies PhD programs across the country. This is by 2016, revealing again that women's studies has become increasingly robust within the university system. It's not gender studies, by the way, it's just women's studies. At the same time, establishing women's studies as a discipline has created challenges for feminist scholars in the academy, particularly as the boundaries and practices of the field are negotiated over time. This is probably referring to the emergence of queer theory and the way that they're actually getting bulldozed by the progression of their own idiot ideology, but we'll leave that out. Some scholarship has noted the attempt to merge the highly political and clearly left-leaning agenda of feminism into the more conservative and corporate university has resulted in numerous tensions and difficulties. So it's not, of course, their own fault. It's somebody else's. In fact, it's that conservative corporate thing. By decentering the professor within the classroom and emphasizing more egalitarian dynamics, letting the inmates run the asylum, in other words, women's studies challenges the very hierarchies that underlie higher education. This is how they see themselves. They see themselves as everybody against them must be somehow conservative or corporate, somehow evil, somehow excluding them for bad and selfish reasons. This is critical theory in a nutshell. There are bad and selfish reasons why they aren't getting their way. The system is the problem. They aren't the problem. Their methodological failures, their activist drive, none of that's the problem. They can't see that. That's like the, 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 the log in their own eye or whatever. They can't see that in themselves. They absolutely cannot see that their own stuff might be garbage. They cannot believe it. They are perfect. Everybody else is the problem. And so it's obviously the existence of hierarchies and real methodologies and things. Those things are obviously schemes by conservative, corporate, patriarchal universities, white supremacists, if we throw on the race aspect. It has nothing to do with the fact from their perspective that their own stuff sucks. And the truth is, their stuff sucks. And they are not able to comprehend it. And then they out, they, they externalize that and say that it's the system. And this is kind of like the money wheel that they turn over and over and over again. They, 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 they produce garbage. Their garbage is rejected. They say that the garbage was rejected for racist and sexist reasons. And they repeat again and again and again until they finally get all the power that they want. Still, they write, this radical upheaval of traditional priorities of the university, like educating students, I would assume, 
it doesn't say that. It says the radical upheaval of traditional priorities of the university has sometimes resulted in problematic consequences. <laughs> really? The professionalization of women's studies has resulted in a strange pairing of second-wave activists who resisted assimilation into the university system, combined with younger women's studies scholars who have studied gender relations without necessarily being politically active. Further, the prioritization of white women's concerns over the concerns of women of color has continued to haunt the implementation and practices of women's studies within and outside the university. A little intersectional nod there to say that it's actually that white women are still racists, so they can continue to grind themselves into the guilt trap that keeps the whole thing running, into solidarity with one another so that they, the, the more perpetually aggrieved are able to milk more out of everybody else. That's how intersectionality spread, by dialectically attacking themselves and to, to create an intersectional um, coalition under a banner of so-called solidarity, where it's this jealous and spiteful solidarity where they're constantly chewing on their own legs back to them. Even more recent attempts to move toward intersectionality have led to an overemphasis on black women's experiences as quintessentially intersectional and a general lack of empirical validation for the processes and consequences of intersectionality. Well, that'll get you canceled today. You better not say that. Four years ago, five years ago, though, it was apparently okay. Five years ago. When attempting to rectify these problems, many women's studies programs have turned to the question of how to meaningfully integrate themselves with other, other critical disciplines like ethnic studies, black studies, indigenous studies, and American studies, which I'm sure that's a very uh, not communist study of America there. Um, though this often raises questions about allegiances and the difficulty of existing within and between multiple fields, particularly if universities do not throw enough financial and political support behind these programs. Da-ha! Look at that. Intersectionality creates all these problems, and the reason it creates problems is because the universities aren't giving enough, giving us enough money to solve them. Give us more money. <laughs> Look at the grift. Look at the grift. Some even fear that women's studies may become an impossibility due to the difficulty of locating its disciplinary boundaries within the university. Meanwhile, remember, they're actually talking about their own discipline becoming a virus to infect all the other ones. Whew, boy. Okay, so they, a new section, Locating Contemporary Women's Studies. Wendy Brown, 2006, noted recently that women's studies may be facing dusk on its epoch. No, sorry, dusk on its epoch. So it's coming to an end. Due to the constant renegotiation of pedagogical and scholarly goals of the field. She asks, is it rigorous? Answer, no. Scholarly, quasi-religious, doctrinaire. Is it anti-intellectual or too political? Overly theoretical or insufficiently political? Does it mass produce victims instead of heroines, losers instead of winners, or does it turn out jargon speaking metaphysicians who have lost all concern with real women? Real women's capitalized, by the way. Has it become unmoored from its founding principles? Was it captured by the radical fringe, by the theoretical elite, the moon worshippers, the man haters, the sex police? Man. It's like they almost look at themselves in the mirror sometimes. In addition to these debates, women's studies faces constant negotiations surrounding the difficult links or divisions between ethnic studies, queer theory, American studies, and political activism. Indeed, contemporary, this is a quote um, from Wendy Brown, contemporary feminist scholarship is not a single conversation, but is instead engaged with respective domains of knowledge or bodies of theory that are themselves infrequently engaged with each other. In short, 
or out of the quote, women's studies students are typically interested in topics that span psychology, sociology, theory, activism, literature, history, and sexuality studies. You didn't hear math, statistics, or science in there, did you? No, of course you didn't. <laughs> and don't, don't try to pretend it's in psychology and sociology. <laughs> Just don't. Students in women's studies might dabble in a wide range of theories and research methodologies, including ethnography, oral history, qualitative psychological analysis, Lacanian and Freudian psychoanalysis, quantitative sociological analysis, memoir or self-reflection, object relations theory, historical theory, literary theory, post-colonial criticism, second and third wave feminist tactics of activism, Marxist theories of labor in political economy, social history, critical science studies, and beyond. Again, you didn't hear anything rigorous there, did you? Nope. Constellation of bullshit. In attempting to decide what women's studies currently is, Wendy Brown noted, quote, It is proposed that the subject and object of the field might be left behind even as the field persists. It is a place where the what and the we of feminist scholarly work is so undecided or so disseminated that it can no longer bound such work, where the identity that bore women's studies into being has dissolved without dissolving the field itself. It's kind of fun listening to this. That's the end of the quote. Existing women's studies programs are, for these reasons, becoming increasingly difficult to find, evaluate, and sustain. Now, gender studies was basically replacing it completely by this point, by the way. Conflicts over naming, for example, have erupted across the country with competing demands for women's studies to merge their names with gender studies, queer studies, sexuality studies, or more radically, to eliminate the word women altogether, and to instead champion critical studies, cultural studies, or social and cultural analysis. What did I tell you? Their queer theory stuff is just eating them alive, and they're trying to figure the women's studies requires a stable notion of woman, doesn't it? And they can't do it because their stupid method has no breaks. Their stupid method is always a slippery slope. They have nothing to do with it to, to stop it. And so here they are reflecting on this in, in kind of panic. Feminist scholars have also struggled, they write, to validate their work in terms of tenure, promotion, and publication as talk of journal impact factor typically valued more in the natural sciences, have appeared more prominently in recent years as a pressure placed upon women's studies faculty when they seek tenure and promotion. See, this is kind of funny because their their journals have pathetically low impact factors. Pathetically low. So basically, there is a mechanism by which the university administration, when it was still somewhat sane, could look at what was going on in these idiotic activist departments and say, you guys are having zero impact on the world. 80 plus percent of your papers get cited zero times. You're producing absolutely nothing of value and you're churning out these activists who are causing us nothing but problems. Maybe we shouldn't fund you. And they're saying, wait a minute, we should, this is a problem. This is the, this is the patriarchal university imposing itself on us again and we're falling for it. We care more about impact factor. They don't want to care about impact factor because impact factor would then indicate to the world that nobody cares about what they're doing. And this is something I got myself in trouble for years ago saying nobody cares about feminism is what I think the article was about in Quillette. Nobody cares about feminism, and that's a problem because that allows them to continue to be absolute train wrecks that are destroying things from within. Like when somebody's trying to establish a counter-hegemony, you should probably be paying attention to them, but they're able to get away with it because 80% of their papers are never cited. Probably most of them are never read except by the people who wrote them and like their best friend. Total garbage, total waste. Why are we, why, why do these things exist? They only create problems and nobody's paying attention to them outside of the people who want to create problems with them. 
Women's studies, they write, also faces challenges in establishing or even wanting a core canon of thought as faculty and administrators disagree about what constitutes a women's studies education and about how much connection should exist to other traditional disciplines. Notice, by the way, that everything in this paper is about pedagogy and education, right? Again, there's that Gramscian idea of getting inside, creating activist intellectuals. He called them working class intellectuals. Activist intellectuals are going to change the system from within by taking over education first and then training the next generation of professionals. Where politics is downstream from culture, culture is downstream from education, and these activists figured it out in the 70s, and they've been beating us for 50 years because of it. That's why leftists keep winning. Some key questions that arise include, should women's studies courses prioritize activism? And if so, how does that work in the largely patriarchal and conservative academy? So the answer to the question is, no, they shouldn't because it's outside of their academic mission. But the problem, they frame it out. They frame the problem as that the academy itself is patriarchal and conservative. In 2006, they write this, but they cite a 1996 paper. 2000, sorry, not 2006, 2016. The university, especially the departments they were in, is certainly in no way conservative. But if you're ensconced in one of these super left bubble disciplines like women's studies, the already, you know, five points beyond average to the left, university administration is going to look super conservative to you. And they're totally confused about this. They're not, everybody's not totally radical activists in, in the, the the university hierarchy and architecture. Therefore, it's all conservative and patriarchal, even though it's like one of the most progressive things on the freaking planet that's destroying itself with its own progressive lurch. It's amazing how blind to the broader perspective these activists are because they're so caught up in their own delusions. Should postmodern and deconstructionist lines of thinking dominate the women's studies classroom? <laughs> or should scholars work to also train students in empirical and positivistic methodologies. And how can feminist science studies inform this thinking? Good luck with that. Again, deconstructionism is a one-way street. It's a slippery slope. It's always slippery. You try to retain empirical and, as you put it in your own words, positivistic methodologies. You're going to get problematized for maintaining positivism, which has been a, there's been a relentless war against positivism in critical theory since the 1930s relentless war. They hate positivism. So if you're going to engage in empirical and positivistic methodologies that care about evidence and reason, you're leaving part of it on the table. You're leaving part of that status quo sustaining ideology on the table. It's not going to happen. How can feminist science studies inform this thinking? Pro tip, they can't. They're useless. What theories should have a prominent place in women's studies classrooms? And how do other models of difference factor into feminist knowledges? So how do we get more conflict theory into this story? While faculty and administrators have lobbed around these questions for many years, consensus on how to answer these questions rarely occurs. So the focus on consensus, legitimation by paralogy, as Jean-Francois Lyotard warned us in the postmodern condition, is their thing. They don't want rigorous methodologies. They want consensus. Why? Because they can enforce consensus. They can bully people into being silent. They can rely on the fact that most people just want to do their jobs and not say anything. And so consensus can be manufactured from a very small number of either bullies or technocrats who are going to order the community for everybody else. And so consensus is the thing that they're focused on. This whole thing is so poisonous. New section, feminist pedagogies. In the broadest sense, feminist pedagogies have as their primary goal the teaching of feminist thought and the establishment of its clear relevance to student lives. Taking the motto, quote, the personal is political, seriously, 
Feminist professors often prioritize issues and subjects that deeply and immediately impact students' personal lives. Personal is political. What a poisonous, terrible idea. These issues can include things like domestic violence, sexuality, body image, eating disorders, social justice work, parenting, family life, educational disparities, wage and economic inequalities, labor, and global inequalities. As one consequence of teaching such up-close and personal subject matter, students in feminist classrooms often experience more intense emotions and affect than students in other classrooms. Remember a long time ago when I talked about the cult dynamics of wokery and I said that the way that cults induce new membership is by creating, manufacturing vulnerability, then exploiting that vulnerability by giving a doctrinal or uh, otherwise cult exit from that feeling of vulnerability. They give you a pathway out of feeling vulnerable. They generate vulnerability, then give you a pathway out of feeling vulnerable. Well, here's what they're talking about. They're using the personal as political to agitate young people who are already experiencing a life transition. We already know that when people move to a new city or they move off to college or they have some large life change where there's this massive disruption in their existing social experience, that they're much more susceptible to taking on new ideologies, to conform with with friends groups, and they're exacerbating this in many cases by, for example, talking about how colleges are dens of rape, college experience is a rape culture, blah, 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 and they can make people feel very vulnerable, and it's very easy to say, but we're activists to stop that problem, and they give people a pathway out of that feeling of vulnerability because they feel like they can do something about it, and they are able to indoctrinate people or actually... They're actually able to groom people into their cult in that way. This is how cults recruit. This is how cults capture members. Manufacture and exploit a vulnerability. Give a pathway out of the feeling of vulnerability through the doctrine. Use that to successively separate people from their usual peer group and to continually reprogram them with more and more of the doctrine. This is what it means to become induced into a cult. This is how this virus of women's studies claims that it works. In a positive sense, students in classrooms with feminist pedagogies reported more willingness to validate and give feedback on other students' works, work, sorry, and students became more politically engaged after taking women's studies classes. Further, the relationship between professors and students in women's studies has become less hierarchical, thus creating greater opportunities for parental projection and strong emotion between students and professors. How on earth is that appropriate? has become less hierarchical, I am stalling out here. The relationship between professors and students in women's studies has become less hierarchical, thus creating greater opportunities for parental projection and strong emotion between students and professors. First of all, right there is your hotbed for abuse. I bet you there's there's rivers of it. But secondly, that's not appropriate to an educational setting. That's a therapeutic setting parental projection onto your professor? What? Strong emotion between students and professors? What? And they're, of course, dissolving this on purpose. Again, there's that vulnerability. There's that cult dynamic that's happening. Vulnerability. Trust the members of the cult who have power. Bring you in. Strong affect. Parental projection. Weirdo, man. Weirdo. In a more negative, that was the positive sense, by the way. Because in a more negative sense, that's the next sentence, students perceived perceived feminist course content as less rational than other courses, rated women professors lower than male professors, and expressed dismissal and disavowal of feminist material. We'll just say 
<laughs> really? How about that? And leave it at that. Female professors also face a plethora of challenges regardless of whether they promote feminist ideologies in the classroom. Teaching evaluations, for example, are often more harsh toward female professors. Question. Female professors are ones teaching feminist garbage. Teaching evaluations, for example, are often more harsh toward female professors, just as female professors report a greater incidence of students challenging their authority, asking their age, commenting on their appearance, or requesting grade changes. For professors with explicitly feminist viewpoints, they are then positioned as, quote, hopelessly biased. <laughs> Sounds like we got our answer. And as having a clear agenda that students often want to challenge. Sounds like we got our answer. Female professors who happen to be feminist activists in the classroom get garbage, but then it's the female professor part that is the reason that something's happening. Also, unlike other disciplines and fields, students in women's studies classrooms are essentially studying themselves as a subject matter. More cult crap going on here. Leading to a lack of distance between course content and their material lives. Students in feminist classrooms express particular resistance to critiquing men, acknowledging structural forces of inequalities, and understanding the problems of blaming the victim. In other words, they resist being indoctrinated in a college classroom. Imagine that. Davis, however, argued that student resistance may, be, may positive ref, positively reflect on the professor's ability to push students to become upset or agitated and to take the classroom content personally. Students' greatest educational growth typically occurred alongside emotional states of confusion, anxiety, excitement, and anticipation. Whew. What are these people doing, and why are we letting them abuse? Granted, they're not our kids when they go to college. They're, they're adults. They're typically 18 to 22 or 3. Sometimes they're 17 or 16, but it's pretty rare, uh, statistically speaking. Why are, why are, we, why are our universities... Why are we funding as taxpayers universities that are abusing the, their students so that they can indoctrinate them and reprogram them as a cult? It's a question. It's just a question to pose. Women's studies as a virus. That's the next section with a question mark. Given the tremendous potential to produce emotional responses in others, to directly impact student lives, and to elicit emotion in the course content, what then are the pedagogi pedagogical priorities of women's studies? We posit that one future pedagogical goal of women's studies is the creation of students as symbolic viruses. They say it, dead straight face. Capable of infecting and unsettling the academic spaces around them. While this metaphor works imperfectly, we do not advocate the killing of the host, for example. They draw a line somewhere. It situates women's studies as an insurrectionary field and extends its already dangerous status in compelling ways. So hold up. They just explained basically that they are a cult ideology that uses cult dynamics to induce vulnerable students into indoctrination and reprogramming, that they meet resistance because of this that they can't understand because they're, they've lost touch with reality, so they have no model to understand what's going on. And they're like, we need an answer to this problem. How about we say that we're viruses? How about we model ourselves after viruses? That'll solve this problem. In order to understand, they write, the metaphorical significance of such a framework, the specific nature of viruses must first be addressed. Scientists typically conceptualize the virus as a particularly small infectious agent that interacts with biological cells in order to replicate. While viruses can be structurally elaborate, they all possess a simple set of important features. 
nucleic acids, DNA, or RNA protected by an outer protein shell that contain information necessary to make future copies in host cells. Viruses replicate in essence by attaching to and exploiting the DNA synthesis process of host cells, entangling themselves within and corrupting the host cell's own DNA. This viral cellular damage contributes to the physiological symptoms of infections, while the immune system then produces various other effects such as inflammation, fever, and its own cell destruction. In some cases, the immune system can overreact and produce positive feedback effects that have the potential to be much more dangerous than the viral infections themselves. For example, the 1918 influenza pandemic disproportionately killed young adults because the viral infection caused their healthy immune systems to overreact. So they're talking about cytokine storms. You may remember, by the way, that I said that Trump, the phenomenon of Trumpism, isn't the virus, it's the cytokine storm. I'm a little more convinced of that at this point. But pause for just a second here. Pause for just a second here. Pause for just a second here to take in what you just heard. These people understand how viruses work. They talk about infecting. They talk about uh, corrupting. They talk about using other cells to reproduce copies of themselves, which is not what those cells are meant for. And they've already framed it out. Maybe this is the ideal answer for us. This is what, this is why I say wokeness works like a virus. They know what they're talking about to a low degree, at least to a simple degree. They're not virologists, but neither am I. Um, they understand what the metaphor represents and they're like, yes, this is us. This is woke. This is critical social justice or women's studies or gender studies or whatever you want to have. Viruses. So now they have to use the iron law of woke projection because on a level they realize this is horrible. One could argue that both capitalism and academia already function with the virus as one of their guiding metaphors. No, they don't. They do not. But let's hear them out. This notion of a virus seeking to replicate itself in the host cell can metaphorically work on numerous levels to explain the interests of both capitalism and academia and any of the typical agents of socialization. Socialization is how they believe that power is spread, that we all enact uh, particular norms and expectations and performances of whether it's gender or race or dignity and decorum, respectability and so on, and we're all socialized into what that looks like. It's all socially constructed and it's all built with power dynamics underneath it to keep certain people out and keep certain other people on top. For example, they write, the project of capitalism essentially functions to produce more capital rather than to produce material goods. Capitalism invades and infects nearly all aspects of American life, work, home, sexuality, relationships, family, education, and works to supplant the priorities of connection, leisure, community, and even personal laziness with the goal of ever more efficient production. Citing Deleuze and Guattari, 1988. So Deleuze and Guattari are lunatic postmodernists. Um, who wrote a book about, uh, it's called A Thousand Plateaus, and schizophrenia, capitalism and schizophrenia, or schizophrenia and capitalism, I don't have it in front of me. They cited Frederick Jameson, another postmodern Marxist thinker, um, in the previous sentence. Work in a capitalist society often extracts labor from workers and leaves their bodies tired, injured, and demoralized. Academia, too, embraces certain aspects of viral infection and its incessant desire to replicate the powerful aspects of the academy in its students. Critical pedagogists call this the hidden curriculum, by the way. Reproduction theories of education view schools and universities as institutions that keep parents and children in similar class positions. 
I mean, that's kind of true in the Ivies, by the way, but outside of the Ivies, it's much less true. Graduate faculty, for example, overwhelmingly train students to become like them, often imposing their own research interests onto students and expecting students to adopt the methodologies, practices, and ideologies of their own small subfields. Yes, your major professor who is a narrow field expert in a particular thing that you chose as a graduate student to work with probably is going to have you work in the same field that you chose to work in with him, which happens to be his field of expertise rather than something else. Horrible. These forms of replication exist not to disrupt or unsettle the existing order, but to fanatically enforce and maintain the existing order and to refuse actual change. Now hold up one second. Iron Law of Woke Projection, right? They said the reason that we have a ideal feminist pedagogy, ideal metaphor in the virus is because it infects and disrupts and unsettles what's going on. And now they're saying that the the capitalism and um, academia also are characterized by this metaphor because they fanatically enforce and maintain the existing order to refuse actual change. That's like saying that viruses infect your cells, but that's like, actually, cells are also viruses of their own kind because they try to keep doing the things that they do. That's literally the argument that they just made with an iron law of woke projection. So now what they're trying to do, though, this is another common woke tactic, is to say, the bad thing we're saying we're doing is what everybody else is already doing. So, of course, we have to do the bad thing just to compete in the bad thing world. But then their argument is, is laughable. Their argument in the metaphor is literally the existing cells doing what the existing cells are supposed to do is just like what a virus does. Except that rather than, you know, infecting other cells and trying to transform how they operate to do something completely different from an outside infectious agent, they're actually, quote, fanatically enforcing and maintaining the existing order and to refuse actual change. Their own... I'm flabbergasted at how stupid these people are sometimes. That being said, they write, the virus is capable of more than merely replication in relation to the host. It also acts as a dangerous mutagen that can radically alter the design and operation of cells. Viral interaction with host cells is not merely transient. After replication, portions of the viral DNA are left behind permanently within cell DNA strands, leading to genetic expressions that have been proposed to cause cancer, autoimmune disorders, and neurological disease. So the difference between, you know, the <clears throat> virus, if you will, of capitalism and academia and other viruses is that they act as mutagens, as virus, real viruses act as mutagens, rather than the thing being the status quo, maintaining, refusing actual change, doing its own job cell that it is. Viruses can actually leave some of their DNA strands behind and lead to, <laughs> lead to cancer, autoimmune disorders, and neurological diseases. So what are they going to say about this? Remember, feminism or women's studies or woke is the ideal metaphor virus situation. What are they going to say about cancer, autoimmune disorders, and neurological disease as a side effect of the virus metaphor that they're applying to themselves. In this sense, the virus may work as a powerful metaphor for women's studies pedagogical practices. Rather than simply inducing harm among its victims, viruses can also represent transformation, transformative change. You can't make it up. I mean, I could make it up, but I could barely make this up. What do they say about the fact that viruses can leave behind their genetic material in the institution or the cells they infect that lead to cancer, autoimmune disorders, and neurological disease. They say 
In this sense, the virus may work as a powerful metaphor for what we're doing, rather than simply inducing harm. <laughs> Weird admission there. Among its victims, viruses can also represent transformative change. The viruses technically lack intention in the most classic sense, they nevertheless can have a powerful impact merely by unworking and unsettling the existing blueprint of host cells. Let me reiterate, because you may have lost the plot here, that this is what they think of themselves as being, and they're proud of it. This is where they think that their ideology should be going. They've now favorably, on purpose, compared themselves to viruses and to cancer, and to neurological disease, and to autoimmune disorders, on purpose. That's what they think of themselves over there in critical social justice land. That's their goal. So how do they describe this? <laughs> it's almost, it's so hard to read this and not laugh. Inherently opportunistic, viruses exploit the vulnerabilities and weaknesses of the systems they attack. Similarly, women's studies programs are allowed to settle into corporate universities and regenerate themselves through the education of students and by manipulating portions of the academy under their control. I'm not lying, that's what it says. Do I have to comment on that? Using interdisciplinary women's studies coursework as a springboard, women's studies students are then set loose, much in the same way that lytic replication wherein cells reproduce viral components until the cell walls rupture causes a burst of new viruses into the system that then infect other cells. Note that this model also assumes that students do not merely receive information, as in the more traditional disciplines, but instead that they utilize information and knowledge systems to develop particular skills, intentions, and insurrectionary priorities. Further, students do form coalitions with professors and other students to promote progressive fields and to enact institutional and social change. I mean, how do you read this and not see what's going on? That's, that's what I don't understand, is that people tell me I'm crazy all the time, and I'm just reading this. Wherein, you know, women's studies students are then set loose, much in the same way that lytic replication causes a burst of new viruses into the system that then infect other cells. We're not talking about students merely receiving information, we're talking about reprogramming what they do, so that they can go be insurrection, or insurrectionary. This is... We can we can try to be high-minded and say this is Gramsci's counter-hegemony building up within the academy, or we can just say like this is what these people these people are doing a parasitic or really viral takeover where they see as an ideal project for themselves to infect institutions as cells, lead to rampant replication of woke activists and woke ideology within those cells until they reproduce those things so much that the institution or cell walls rupture, causing a burst of new viruses out into the system to then infect more cells. They are literally describing themselves as a pandemic on society, or within a particular body, that might cause cancer, and that would be great. Women's studies should prioritize the development of students who can move through within and between, between disciplines, who can, in essence, change form. 
As Patricia Clough and uh, Jasper Poor, 2012, wrote, quote, the virus is transformative. It has an open-ended relation to form itself. In this sense, the virus takes on characteristics, albeit selectively, which usually are attributed to the virus. At play is the virus's ability to change itself as it replicates and disseminates. These infectious students are out of the quote. Carrying the blueprints of feminist pedagogies step into other programs and reconstitute themselves through the work they submit and through interaction with instructors and student peers. This infects the formerly isolated and protected traditional disciplines, for example, history, mathematics, physics, psychology, and so on, with the principles of critical feminist analysis. Unwittingly, then, the corporate university begins to integrate bit by bit portions of the feminist pedagogies into its own ideology as the perpetual expansion of the corporate university builds upon itself, it carries these alien blueprints into new domains. This then raises the question of how women's studies benefits from its permanently marginal position, always on the outskirts and in the shadows of the behemoth corporate university. While mindless production and consumption, heavily influenced by capitalism, drives the mainstream of the corporate university, women's studies and its allies, for example, ethnic studies, American studies, religious studies, can prioritize the project of infection as its core principle or mission. Critically aware of its relationship to the surrounding ideologies and can the canons of thought used in traditional disciplines, women's studies as a virus can unwork, unsettle, and dismantle commonly held assumptions about, quote, truth within the university. While this reflects its power, it also opens up complex possibilities for panic, anxiety, and hostility directed toward the women's studies field, uh, toward women's studies as a field, and toward women's studies professors as individuals. Yeah, the immune system of society going after you when you characterize yourself as a cancer-causing virus is the vic that's the place where you're going to now wound collect and claim victim status that the immune system of the institution and the immune system of society is going to target the people that you have characterized and the ideology that you characterize as viral infection that will cause disease and cancer. You're claiming that that's the problem, that there is an immune system at all. So they finish this paragraph and section. This can have material consequences like the firing of feminist faculty, good, closure of programs, good, or continued erosion of institutionalized support, good, or it can just infuse feminist classrooms and feminist research with intense emotional responses. Okay, let me pause since they mentioned religious studies. For my friends, I know there's a lot going on in the Southern Baptist Convention right now. Maybe this will end up coming out too late. But they have this whole thing with the Resolution 9. They're trying to bring in critical race theory and intersectionality, or they have brought in as an analytical tool. They're trying to push it out. There's this big election coming up for the president big war, and it really comes down to this being on the ballot. And they're trying to make the case that we have to listen to the Wokies, we have to listen to critical race theory, we have to hear what they say, we have to bring them to the table, etc. Right? This then raises the question of how women's studies benefits from its permanently marginal position, always in the outskirts and the shadows of the behemoth corporate university. While mindless production and consumption heavily influenced by capitalism drives the mainstream of the corporate university, here we are, women's studies and its allies, for example, ethnic studies, American studies, religious studies, can prioritize the project of infection as its core principle or mission. Critically aware of its relationship to the surrounding ideologies and the canons of thought used in traditional disciplines 
Women's studies as a virus can unwork, unsettle, and dismantle commonly held assumptions about truth within the university. Listen, Southern Baptists who care about your churches. Listen, Catholics who care about your churches. Listen, corporate leaders who care about your corporate culture. Listen, anybody who cares about your institution or your society to that part. Listen to this. Wokeness will prioritize the project of infection as its core principle or mission. Why are you letting it in? Critically aware of its relationship to the surrounding ideologies and the canons of thought used traditionally, wokeness as a virus can unwork, unsettle, and dismantle commonly held assumptions about truth within whatever you're doing. Why would you let this in? It is not an analytical tool. It is not a mere analytical tool. It is an infectious agent meant to get in and unwork the very notions of truth. And if you're talking a religion, your truth is with a capital T, and it's going to infect, and it's going to unwork. The thing characterizes itself as a virus. Why are you saying, yeah, let's bring the damn thing to the table? Didn't we just get through a huge pandemic where we stupidly locked ourselves down, where we avoided human contact for a year to the greatest degree possible because we were so afraid of potential infection? Why on earth would you say, you know what? Bring this virus in. Put it at the table. Let's see what we can work out. Why on earth would you do that? Well, I can tell you why. And this is what the people who are going to try to defend this are going to say. Because they know that the, that the virus, in this case, the woke, are going to throw a fit if you don't let them. How do I? Well, they even know this and they're predicting it so that they can then utilize this threat, this implicit threat. While this reflects its power, it also opens up complex possibilities for panic, anxiety, and hostility directed toward women's studies as a field and toward women's studies professors as individuals. They're saying, and this is extortion, this is racketeering, they're saying, put us at the table where we can give everybody our disease, or at least some people, where we can spread our disease in your organization. Put us at the table, or we're going to throw a giant fit and say that you're the one panicking, you're the one who's anxious, you're the one that's hostile. You literally have something characterizing itself as a hostile, infectious agent, saying, if you don't let us infect you, if you don't let us infect you, that you are the one who's being hostile. You know what? This whole paradox of intolerance or what a paradox of tolerance or whatever, you know, should we be intolerant to the intolerant, blah, blah, blah. You should be intolerant to anything that characterizes itself as a virus that's going to come in and infect your organization and change it fundamentally from within so that it will dismantle, in its own words, unwork, unsettle, and dismantle commonly held assumptions about truth. You should be intolerant of that. You are not the hostile agent. And if your immune system reacts and pushes it out, you have done the right thing. You've kept the virus, the disease, out of your system. New system, <laughs> new section. Viruses and affect, Ebola, HIV, and beyond. This is going to be juicy. Like many biological occurrences, seemingly devoid of political and social meanings, viruses also have notable potential to produce emotion in individuals and affect in the culture at large, sometimes outside of full consciousness. Good old false consciousness, neo-Marxism, always raising its head, both within individual people, that is, those, inf uh, for example, those inf infected, those who care about the infected, etc., and the culture at large. The process of getting sick en masse, of witnessing or experiencing the destruction that viruses cause, of being infected has powerful emotional consequences. 
We just lived through a pandemic. I think we see this. For example, they write, the HIV epidemic formed uh, formed from a disease perceived as an ingenious, unpredictable novel led to... perceived as ingenious, unpredictable novel, led to inexorable feelings of dread and shame within the medical community and the general population. Eventually, this led to the inevitable moralization of the disease and those infected with HIV. The disease is now infamous for its associations to gay male sexuality and the gay plague, intravenous drug use, and the loss of a racialized nationalist identity through the invasion of the third world. In many cases, HIV is now synonymous with fear, anxiety, and moral panics. The amplification of people's emotional reactions to HIV has emphasized the primordial fear of HIV-AIDS as a sign of an imminent cultural apocalypse. Media coverage similarly feeds into this frenzy of fear by comparing HIV to biblical plagues, the Black Death, moral scourges, and even to hell. Increasingly, the rhetoric enforces, reinforces its fury of anxiety when the media links HIV to, quote, to a, quote, fight against an exponential enemy and a, quote, race against time, citing Gould, 1987, waxing nostalgic on the sunset of humanity and the utter hopelessness of the new social and global order. HIV and AIDS have clearly captured the emotional tenor of our time, infusing sexuality and politics with a clear emphasis on the virus as dangerous. More recently, the Ebola virus has illuminated the ways that social anxieties about infectious diseases are informed by and distorted through the mainstream media. In 2001, a Canadian Ebola scare involving a critically ill Congolese woman caused a public and media panic despite the unlikely odds that Ebola had breached the Canadian border. Thus ensuing, uh, sorry, the ensuing discursive explosion of panic expanded conceptions of Africa and Africans as threatening, invasive, and an enemy to the Western world. I don't think that's actually true, Uh, but okay. It has a citation, so it must be true because none of this literature is bogus. Ebola became a proxy for the gendered and racialized capital O other with headlines associating, quote, the female body with fear, nationality, and anxiety. Same citation. There's no way that's true. There's just no way that's true. Nobody looks at women and thought, whoop, Ebola. Just, that's just made up. This That's why you can't have crackpots writing academic papers because the idea laundering process gets to put them in another paper and another paper and another paper, and it just becomes true by the magical process of uh, legitimation in a bogus uh, discipline, or what Brett Weinstein called ideal laundering. After test results came back positive, came back negative for Ebola. Sorry, the media, now with less material to, manip- to manipulate, continued on by investigating the criminal background of the non-infected woman. Through this process, the anxiety and moral panics about an invasive infectious disease, combined with the criminalization of a woman of color and by default women of color more broadly, fused together. The fear of Ebola and the fear of the diseased black woman. No, people did not see black women and think because there's one black woman who has Ebola that black women carry Ebola. You can imagine the paragraph about COVID and the Chinese virus that would come next had this been written this year, though, can't you? Woo! Even historically, multiple examples of mass hysterias, moral panics, and outright cultural anxieties have occurred in relation to viruses or other infectious biological agents. The Black Death, a European and Middle uh, Middle Eastern plague pandemic during the Middle Ages, threw organized society into existential chaos and produced mass violence against beggars, Jews, and Roman uh, and yeah, Romas. Sorry, Romas, not Romans. So, 
didn't the Black Death kill like a third of the people <laughs> alive at the time in the in the Europe and Middle East? Cholera epidemics throughout modern history have catalyzed waves of social violence and political upheavals. Other historical epidemics have generated fervor around the persecution of politicians and police officers, doctors, gravediggers, prostitutes, gypsies, and racial and religious minorities. For example, despite the lack of widespread evidence seen in the epidemics of early modernity, the Spanish flu of 1918 through 1919 was considered by many to be, quote, a nefarious and demonic weapon developed by Germans during the First World War. You can just imagine the paragraphs about COVID. Oh my gosh. Oh, the next paragraph is about SARS. Fear and anxiety toward contagion can sometimes even outpace the, dis- the spread of the diseases themselves. In some cases, the fear of a disease looms larger than the actual infectious disease, as in the case of the H5N1 virus, commonly known as the bird flu, or in the case of the 2002-2003 through 2003 SARS outbreak. Despite the relative seriousness of the SARS disease in impacted regions, the detrimental economic consequences induced by the psychological effects of the resulting social global panic were more recalcitrant than the disease itself. Huh. What a fun paragraph in light of COVID. Let's read it again and think about COVID. Fear and anxiety toward contagion can sometimes even outpace the spread of the diseases themselves. In some cases, the fear of a disease looms larger than the actual infectious disease, as in the case of the H5N1 virus, commonly known as the bird flu, or in the case of the 2002-2003 through 2003 SARS outbreak. How about the 2019-2021 through 2021 COVID outbreak? Despite the relative seriousness of the SARS disease in impacted regions, the detrimental economic consequences induced by the psychological effects of the resulting social global panic were more recalcitrant than the disease itself. How about that? How about that? Huh. Mass hysteria has also historically produced social, psychological, and physiological impacts without any requirement of an organic cause. Dancing plagues throughout the Middle Ages caused large groups to spastically dance to the point of exhaustion or death. These bouts of dance, triggered by, a cult- by cultural conditions, became a means of catharsis set up against a bleak social backdrop. I don't know anything about that. People be crazy. They also... I mean... We had a fun summer last summer, didn't we? Further, fears of industrial accidents and terrorist attacks have generated various outbreaks of hysteria through the 20th and 21st centuries, including clusters of historical or hysterical episodes following the 1995 Japanese subway gas attacks. In short, nearly anything has the potential to create a fear of disease contagion, and as the hypervigilance over terrorist threats has thrown the United States into a permanent state of anxiety. Imagine if, like, our public health officials did something crazy, like come out and call racism a public health threat. What that could possibly do. Imagine if the people who are exactly ideologically aligned with the people who wrote this paper, who seem aware of what that can do, were to come out and say that racism is a public health threat and that COVID is going to kill every grandmother. Imagine what it could possibly do. Imagine what could happen. Wild. In tandem with the destructive potential of viruses to harm, to kill, to wreak havoc on the culture at large, viruses also... Here we go. Viruses can also generate productive or even creative outcomes. For example, viruses can help to reinforce nationalism in some cases, while promoting global collectivization in others, and channel funding in the direction of research, treatment, and prevention efforts about viruses. Further, funding for Ebola, 
research has increased manifold since the 2014 outbreak began, the larger issues of addressing the racist and xenophobic undertones of the Ebola outbreak remain relatively untouched. Right, racist and xenophobic undertones. Where are those? Viruses also have the ability to command attention in immediate and visceral ways, prompting people to radically alter deeply ingrained behaviors. For example, following the initial spread of information about HIV, people reported much more positive view of condoms, an awareness of the need to communicate about sexuality, and to fund efforts to promote sexual health grew exponentially in the United States. The spread of HIV also inspired the creation of the activist group ACT UP, that influenced and laid the groundwork for other social movements for LGBT rights and gender equality. So now we get to women's studies and affect. So they've laid out the affect of viruses, and now women's studies as a virus has affect associated with it too. When compared to the emotional impact of viruses, particularly the sorts of panics viruses create, women's studies and feminism also tend to produce similar emotional responses both within and outside of the corporate university. Despite its successes and accomplishments as a field, and the way it fits with university priorities of social engagement, community involvement, and interdisciplinarity, women's studies has always had to struggle to maintain its existence, because it's fraudulent. But I digress. Panics surrounding women's studies continue to threaten and undermine its ability to thrive. Hold on. Hold on. They just talked about panics around viruses and how those can be a big deal. They just talked about panics around viruses. They just characterized women's studies as a virus. So what they're trying to do is say, you know, these panics around these viruses were overblown. The panics were the fake, were, were, were the real phenomenon. The virus itself was okay, HIV and Ebola, SARS. Viruses were okay. The panics around them were not okay. And so panics surrounding women's studies continue to threaten and undermine its ability to thrive, even while those panics demonstrate the clear nerve that women's studies hits on a broader level. We annoy people, therefore we must be right. This is the bad logic. For example, feminist and left-wing professors have endured accusations of communism, true, terrorism, sometimes true, like Angela Davis literally did that, um, uh, the bombing in the Capitol in 1983 It was involved Susan Rosenberg, who was literally a terrorist, went on and she is actually on the board of Thousand Currents and Thousand Currents handles the money for for Black Lives Matter. Yep. Terrorism. Check. Bill Ayers, the whole the whole of um, the Weatherman Underground. They all went to K through 12 activism after they stopped being literal terrorists. <laughs> terrorists. Check. Communists. Check. And destroying the university. Check alongside sustained backlash against women's studies and its allies. Yeah, backlash is called an immune system. It gets rid of viruses. We like that. The production of panic, in essence, demonstrates the threat and damage to the existing order and to people's feelings of comfort and security. Women's studies department chairs and professors have routinely discussed the consequences of living with the possibility of shutting down their programs, cutting funding, or otherwise redirecting resources away from, the women's away from women's studies, even while they acknowledge the normal occurrences of fully enrolled classes and clear impact on campuses and beyond. This is like if you had the virus, like if a virus had like a, a page in the New York Times to propagandize for itself, and they're railing on the, the fact that there's an immune system. Body's immune system keeps crapping on, on, on Ebola, or body's immune system keeps junking up the, you know, <laughs> the coronavirus. Body's immune system is the problem. I mean, this is their own metaphor. Further, they write, reactions to women's studies in the public also resonate with fear, hostility, and panic, whether via harassing celebrities like Lena Dunham, 
who out themselves as feminists, or by accusing women's studies professors of corrupting students. Well, they do. In fact, didn't you just say that the whole point of a virus is that it corrupts the cell and that your ideal pedagogy is a virus that infects and corrupts the cell and the cell is the students? Didn't you just say that about yourselves? You did. Of course you did. But this reminds me of that famous meme created years ago where you have a feminist with a shovel and a big pile of poop and the poop says opinions on it and she's flinging the opinions over a wall that say the internet. And then in the next frame, it shows shovels flinging the poop back over the wall at her. Um, and it's on her and she's got her hands up and she's panicking, screaming, help misogyny. Again, propaganda page for in the New York times four viruses against the immune system is what we're reading here, but it's like self-contradictory, but of course they don't care about that. The fusion of panic and trivialization also appears in the, in reactions to women's studies, scholarship, journal publications, and tenure committee decisions as a field of permanently, as a field permanently critical of traditional modes of knowing, assessing, and understanding. <laughs> That's how they characterize themselves as a field permanently critical of traditional modes of knowing, assessing, and understanding. For example, feminist literature scholars work to upend typical readings of classic texts, while feminist social scientists prioritize the experiences, narratives, and data of those typically forgotten or obscured by the fields. Women's studies often struggles to assess its own excellence. Because there isn't any. <laughs> There's none. Some questions that arise include, who should and can assess and judge the quality of women's studies scholarship, particularly if women's studies is permanently interdisciplinary and most senior scholars were trained within a specific traditional discipline? So nobody could possibly tell us we're wrong. Are we crap? Who's to say? How can tenure committees assess the value of women's studies publications if all women's studies publications are typically devalued as trivial? They can say, look, Nobody reads your garbage, has zero citations, your entire journal, you have entire issues of journals that have fewer than five citations. It's trivial. It's garbage. It's actually trivial by an objective definition of trivial. Nobody cares what you activist weirdos who describe yourselves as viruses are really doing, so we're not going to include you in our university. That's how they can do it. Glad I could clear that up for you. How do the official channels of universities work with the critical material women's studies professors teach? Um, not well. And how do they account for the complicated emotional reactions produced in students and evident on teaching evaluations of feminist professors? Well, maybe people should listen to the students who are pissed off that they're getting indoctrinated and reprogrammed and bullied in their classrooms, that they're getting railroaded by freaking activists who have no ability to possibly hear another opinion. Maybe they should account for it like that the professors are actually psychologically abusive bullies who are activists who are completely uh, adhering to an ideology that's not even based in reality and that it has no damn place in the university in the first place. Maybe they should assess it that way. I would. At times, women's studies produces outright anger and hostility as well. Yeah, no kidding, because you won't, you can't stop you people. You just keep doing it, and then you whine about it if anybody stands up to you. So it's very frustrating. So people do get anger and hostility. You say hateful and horrible things. You abuse students. You groom kids into um, going into positions where they emotionally and physically end up abusing themselves, sometimes medically. Yeah, we're going to get mad about this. That doesn't mean you're right. It means you're horrible. For decades, men's rights groups have accused the academy and women's studies programs in particular of oppressing men and boys and of hating men because they do. You actually do. There is no way to study masculinity 
that's approved within university contexts whatsoever. I don't even know if masculinity needs to be studied, but let's suppose that it does. There's no way to study it, not through a feminist lens that criticizes it as the root of all patriarchal and misogynistic evil. That's called hating men. You are oppressing boys and men. You can look at the outcomes. Look at educational attainment. Look at the educational disengagement of boys and men. Look at the way uh, men, look at the way that you're actually look at look at the psychological outcomes that are happening. Look at these stupid blowback movements like neo reaction that are like this performative toxic masculinity shit that's actually it's not good. You are oppressing men and boys. The data are clear. These people aren't making this stuff up. Sorry, I got worked up. From charges leveled against family courts for the supposed favoritism toward mothers to attacks on the women's studies programs as anti-male, these groups have as their primary mission the goal to counter the supposed socio-cultural misandry that permeates U.S. culture. Yeah, it's people are noticing that your stuff is bad. Right, okay, good, and we do want to counter it. The immune system is important. Remember, you're a virus. We're the immune system. Fusing the rhetoric of equality with clear tenets of hegemonic masculinity, anti-feminism has gained ground within the general public consciousness and even within certain academic circles. Yes, because the immune system needs to react against the virus that you say you are. Feminism has been, in some cases, demonized and degraded, a move that clearly goes beyond merely, quote, not calling oneself a feminist. Yes, because the immune system has to stop the virus. Do you actually know what, you know, um, what, what immune cells do to viruses? Do you, if you, you should, do you know what they do to viruses? They destroy them. They eat them. They literally eat them. One recent far-right media article even proclaimed that, quote, patriarchy is a gal's best friend. Well, the see, here's this, here's another woke trick. That's the, that's the meme, throwing poop over the wall, having poop thrown back on you, and then you scream misogyny. We call this wound collecting. You do something to provoke a reaction, and then when you get hurt, you cry that somebody hurt you. The, all of these critical theory ideologies predict that there will be a huge blowback against them. But that's because what they're doing is terrible. So there is going to be this. So then when the blowback comes, they're like, see, we were right. It's the stupidest trick, and it's almost it's the second stupidest trick. Calling themselves anti-racist or anti-fascist is literally the stupidest trick. It's the second stupidest trick in their toolkit. It works over and over and over again because, as my friend Mike Nana has pointed out, if you come across two people fighting in the street, one of them is probably, maybe, we'll assume, one is right, one is wrong for the sake of the, of the analogy. And what you see is two dickheads fighting in the street. And they're both bad guys. They're just two people causing a disturbance. And so it's very easy for these activists to provoke a fight, whether professional or cultural. And then when the retaliate, if you don't retaliate, this is that mid-level violence thing I've talked about before. If you don't retaliate, they just win. If you do retaliate, all people see is that there's a fight and they say, we're the helpless victims. Look how bad these bad people are victimizing us. And people who don't know the whole story or don't have time to hear the whole story and don't want to sort through this stupid he said, she said argument about what's really going on are just going to say everybody here is a jerk and they're going to side with the people who are perceived as victims. And this is a thing that's being manipulated and exploited again and again and again by this ideology very effectively. The notion, they write, of post-feminism or modern sexism 
has also made similar claims about the irrelevance of feminist movements, arguing that gender equality has already been accomplished or cannot exist through commonly understood feminist labels or ideals. Probably mostly true. As such, post-feminism has argued for a highly individualistic understanding of inequalities and embraces sexual differences as natural. Definitely true. The conservative group Accuracy in Academia, which seeks to attack feminist liberal professors, has recently produced its own lecture series entitled Sex, Lies, and Women's Studies, claiming to deconstruct women's studies pedagogies in order to illuminate the supposed failure of feminism. These movements seek to essentially affirm the need for the patriarchal status quo, devalue the critical capacities of women's studies programs, and reappropriate the rhetoric of liberation for a conservative far for the conservative far right. So this is why it's so hard to fight a dialectical movement. If you don't fight back, they just win. If you do fight back, they t they go cry about the wounds that they collected. If you're hard on them and if you're just very careful and, pa and patient and accurate, well, they just seek to essentially reaffirm the need for patriarchal for the patriarchal status quo, keep all the problems of society in place, don't worry about us, poor victims, devalue the critical capacities of women's studies programs, poor us, and reappropriate the rhetoric of liberation for the conservative far right. They're just playing a framing game. These are all stupid lies, but they do it over and over and over again, and stupid squishes fall for it. Maybe there must be something to it. They wouldn't have written it if there wasn't something to it. It's a manipulation. They even said viruses manipulate. Their, they even said in this paper that part of their goal is to manipulate. Okie dokie. Collectively, these institutional and popular responses represent the corporate university's immune responses. That's right. We're the immune system to the imposition of the feminist virus. So let's talk about the status quo. In biology, we call it homeostasis. The goal of the immune system is to fight off the virus and maintain homeostasis. It's good. Status quo as homeostasis is good. It's what allows the organism to, as they said themselves, they don't want the organism to die. That's what allows the organism not to die. The immune system is good. Collectively, these institutional and popular responses represent the corporate university's immune responses to the imposition of the feminist virus. They really said that. Anti-feminist, post-feminist, and men's rights organizations represent metaphorically the protective T-cells and cytokines that seek out and dismantle threatening critical pedagogi pedagogical invaders. Please, God help me. <laughs> oh, Lord, help me. How they think that they're on the right side of this after they can write things like that is beyond me. Without the immune system, the organism will die. And they say, no, we don't want the organism to die because they're liars. The mass media further enforces the trivialization and mockery of academic feminism, as it should, but actually it's on your side, girls. Combined with the outright hostilities and anger, by framing women's studies as having dangerous intentions, it does. You just said repeatedly yourself that it's a dangerous, did you, did you, have a, did you see yourself as a dangerous field? Hate mail. Hostile commentaries and even verbalized intent to harm those doing feminist work have confirmed the status of feminism as a clear threat to the existing order, both within and outside of the mass media. There's a lot to unpack there. Wound collecting is happening for sure. Hate mail, hostile commentaries, even verbalized intent to harm. I'm not excusing verbalized intent to harm. I might excuse hate mail and hostile commentary because... Big girls can put their big girl panties on if they're going to get into the academic arena. They're going to get into the fray. They're going to get some hate mail and hostile commentaries. Everybody else does. 
In fact, I think women get less of it than men, even though the feminists say the opposite. Um, but that's beside the point. Here's the thing. You have an ideology that expresses itself as a virus, that expresses its opposition as the immune system to protect from the virus, that then says that when the immune system attacks it, the virus, and this is their own paper, when the immune system attacks the virus, that it's bad for doing so. Okay? What they're saying here is that these things, hate mail, hostile commentaries, verbalized intent, they're saying the fact that the immune system exists means we need more virus. But that's the argument of the side that wants the virus to win, which is going to kill the host. Right? And the thing is, you... We have to try to stop an infectious viral agent that's trying to destroy the body. We have to. The immune system has to. And then we have to use, like right now, we're using every legal means possible if we're going to step up to this plate. We've actually just been using argumentative means, battling in the marketplace of ideas, the battleground of ideas. It's not enough because they won't stop. So when you have people who, you know, the feminists put out their critique, people come back and they say, this is BS, here's where it's wrong, here's where it's weak, or they just ignore it and let it just not get any attention. The feminists or the women's studies or the gender studies or the woke in general then come back and say, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. Your criticism was actually proof that there's a problem. So there's literally no reasonable means to stop people who won't accept reason. There's no evidence-based way to stop people who won't accept evidence if they're enabled by the institutions. And if the institutions are enabling them because they're so infected, there's no way to stop them. So what do you think is going to happen? Some people are going to shake out. They're going to send hate mail. They're going to send hostile commentary. They might even, and they shouldn't, send threats. Because at the end of this road is violence. If you have a problem that's going to try to destroy your civilization or your institution, and you don't want your civilization or your institution to be destroyed, and it's not amenable to reason, and it's not amenable to evidence, and it's not amenable to public pressure because it holds institutions against that, it's not amenable to anything, reason, etc., it ends in violence. It ends in the T-cells destroying the virus. That's where it's going to end. And what they're doing is accelerating that process to war. This is not good. And they have no ability to understand it because they're so convinced of their own righteousness that they'll even write a paper comparing themselves to viruses and cancer, thinking that's a good thing. Viruses they name SARS, Ebola, HIV. They compare themselves to this. Cancer, which would probably imply, for example, HPV. For example, they write, Cambridge Classics professor Mary Beard has endured harassment and defamation on a nearly constant basis. A New, York, a New Yorker article by Rebecca Mead stated that, quote, such online interjections, shut up, you bitch, is a fairly common refrain, refrain often contain threats of violence, a predictable menu of rape, bombing, murder, and so forth. She mildly reported one tweet that had been directed at her, quote, I'm going to cut off your head and rape it. There's no excuse for that kind of garbage. It's an indication of where this goes. The point that it's expressing is actually that you have a movement that's so dangerous that it represents itself as a virus, 
It states its intention is to infect and to completely remake the purpose of institutions in society. They compare themselves to viruses and cancer in a positive way. They compare their enemies to the immune system and say that the immune system shouldn't exist. And when the immune system, when the, when the lower level activities of the immune system aren't working, these cytokine storm type activities start flaring up. And they even recognize in the paper that's often what ends up killing the host. This is the kind of blindness that provokes a civil war. This is the kind of blindness that provokes violence. And then when it comes, they collect the wounds and say, nobody in a civil society should be working this way. But the assumption there is that they are part of civil society, but they're comparing themselves as an infectious alien agent to destroy from within that civil society. Do you see the trick? They're saying, oh, this shouldn't happen in civil society, while they're actually not participating as part of civil society themselves. And the tools of civil society, they've organized their viral agent to infect at the sites, the receptor sites are the tools of civil society, so that they can then say, ah, oh, civil society, the second anybody comes at them, and they're right, we should preserve civil society. But we have to recognize that they're outside of civil society, so we don't invite them in. We have to take steps to realize that our institutions have been infected with a virus. That's their idea for themselves. And we have to get it out with immune system maneuvers that hopefully are not going to go to the point of these violence, uh, th these violent activities. This is the whole game that they keep playing. They position, oh, in civil society, look at these horrible things our opponents are doing. They're the enemy. But they themselves are the virus, and they say their opponents are the immune system. Think about that for a minute. Many other women's studies and professor, women studies professors in the public eye have also endured such public abuse for their work and ideas. Feminist blogs endure nearly constant harassment and angry, angry vitriolic diatribes on their online comment section, what one scholar calls ebile. Taken individually, these could be seen as anomalies. Seen together, this represents a more serious, troubling trend that reflects the powerful affect feminism and women's studies often produce in the more conservative and far-right public sphere. Conversely, however, when feminism is framed more positively in the media, men and women express more solidarity with feminists and feminist aims. So, yeah, with a propaganda campaign, stuff works. Yeah, I get you. Propaganda works. Right. Okay. You just called the so-called more conservative far-right the immune system against yourself, the virus. It's not a troubling trend that the immune system protects itself from a virus. Only somebody who's completely detached would make this mistake, and that's what we're up against here. Women's studies is dangerous. New section. One must ask, then, whether women's studies is actually a dangerous field to some entities, and what might be at stake in claiming women's studies as purposefully infectious and intentionally dangerous. Is there any truth to the accusation that women's studies professors are ruining America? Yes, there is. They don't say that, but I do. Are women's studies programs, quote, destroying the way things have always been? Is that perhaps a good thing? Oh, well, there we go. We were recently asked to comment on a trend of women in Phoenix embracing, quote, a retro housewife lifestyle where they submit to their husbands and remain at home out of duty. They see the people, I mean, I'm not down with this trad thing, but if it makes people happy, they do have that freedom to do that if they want, but not according to our women's studies virus. 
The notion of women's studies as dangerous and infectious implies, much like the metaphor of the virus, that it has permanently altered its host's DNA and has radically upset its environment. This process reveals the danger of dismantling the status quo, homeostasis, by introducing feminist pedagogies into the corporate university. Perhaps women's studies could, now and in the future, embrace as a true accomplishment the infection of traditional spaces both within and outside the academy. So they're trying to get away from being labeled dangerous with this series of questions they open this up with. Is it really dangerous? Is there any truth to the accusation that we're ruining America? Is there any, is it really true that we're destroying the way things have been? And then they they pivot. Maybe it's a good thing. And then they brag about it. They brag about it. Perhaps women's studies could, now and in the future, embrace as a true accomplishment the infection of traditional spaces like your church or your university or your government or your family, both within and outside the academy. It has in part already done so, but we argue that women's studies could push this political position even further. For example, resituating women's studies as an exuberant contagion one that disregards a predetermined canon of thought and instead prioritizes a fusion of activism and scholarship, there's your Marxism, by the way, could transform its self-understanding and political priorities. Accepting these possibilities rather than trying to be safe, respectable, and accommodating represents important territory in the future of feminism. Do you remember when I said they play this game that they say, civil society, this stuff shouldn't happen. Nobody should be threatening us. No, no, no. And I agree, people shouldn't be threatening them. But they said there shouldn't be hostile comments or vigorous criticism. They just position themselves outside of civil society. They want the rules of civil society to protect them, but they don't want to have to participate by them. This is the same as repressive tolerance from Herbert Marcuse. You can go listen to that too. I recorded that podcast. They want a double standard that they don't have to follow the rules of civil society, but the rules of civil society protect them. That's what's going on here. This is the virus writing propaganda in the New York Times or really in an academic journal, for their virus's right to proceed with no immune system to stop it. That's literally their argument. Maybe that's why they compare themselves to viruses like HIV, the disabled immune system. A brief look at some of the accomplishments of women's studies might also confirm that women's studies already poses a real danger to the corporate, patriarchal, white, middle-class, able-bodied, etc. status quo. Is it dangerous? No, we're not dangerous. Hmm, everything's fine. Oh, maybe actually it's good that we're dangerous. By the way, we, we pose a major danger to everything, to the status quo, to the homeostasis, because we're a virus. Women's studies programs have successfully lobbied history departments to more seriously address the lives of women, just as they have outlined the theoretical and empirical ways to understand intersecting and interlocking identities of oppression. Feminists have demanded more serious analyses of sexual assault and domestic violence on campus. Well, that really backfired, actually, because the campus thing turned into a huge uh, witch hunt. It was an inquisition, the Title IX Inquisition, it was rightly identified as. And have invaded traditionally male fields like philosophy and English. In some cases, like the field of psychology, feminists have made it possible for women not only to invade the traditionally male and pathologizing field. Notice that in 2018, two years after this came out, the American Psychological Association literally named traditional masculinity as a psychological disorder, pathologizing field, once it got taken over by the women's but to radically take it over. That's what they say. Field of psychology, 
Not only have they been able to invade the field, but to radically take it over. Psychology is now dominated by female students who make up 72% of PhD and PsyD recipients entering the field in 2007, compared to just 20% in 1970. More importantly, women's studies pedagogies have equipped students with the necessary tools to see any field, any course, and any future career through a critical lens. In other words, they've reprogrammed people in accordance with their cult. With these tools, students may go on to consume less, demand better working conditions, produce feminist art. That's useful. Jesus. Evolve their expectations without satisfying... Sorry, about. Evolve their expectations about satisfying careers and work lives, pass feminist legislation, and change their romantic family and kinship relationships. Dismantle the family, baby. Gramsci. Five cultural institutions infect and eat... Uh, and, and to, to establish counter hegemonies in religion, family, education, media, and law. These collectively represent a danger in particular to the priorities of their favorite enemy, the corporate university. Yeah, because it couldn't possibly be a problem for anybody else. Women's studies is an infectious discipline, one that serves not only as a virus that attaches to the host bodies of other disciplines and disrupts and infects them, but one that fundamentally alters the cell's blueprint and directs it to a new purpose, that is cancer, might accurately describe the kinds of work that the field could prioritize and embrace, or in any case, should prioritize and should embrace. Women's studies students and the fields they infect and disrupt both gain from such an, inter- both gain from such an arrangement. Virus is good for you. Cancer is good for you. That's the, literally their argument. We are virus. We are cancer. They're good for you. We'll, all, we'll benefit. You'll benefit too. That's their argument. You'll benefit from your cancer. Maybe it'll turn you into a mutant like in, in, in the X-Men. Maybe that's what's going on. That's actually kind of what it is. Their liberation model is that like magically things will just work out. Communism doesn't know how podcasts explain this. Magically things are just going to work out when you get rid of all the problematics. So if you just let them infect you, the virus is going to turn you into a mutant with superpowers. That's more, I mean, that is really their argument. That's actually their argument. As Clawen Parr noted, quote, in its replications, the virus does not remain the same, nor does that which it confronts and transits through. End quote. Just as women's studies has gained much from its institutional status, no joke, it has also lost some of its bite. A problem this essay takes up. Yeah, it's not radical enough, apparently. Further, so it needs to be more viral, it needs to be more HIV, it needs to be more SARS, it needs to be more Ebola, it needs to be more cancer, more metastatic cancer. Further, if women's studies also works to train students to become their own kind of viruses, capable of infecting, disrupting, and settling and altering their own spaces at work, home, in relationships, and in their communities, sounds like a recipe for a happy world, perhaps framing women's studies as dangerous may actually prove useful and interesting. Dangerous things, after all, transform not only through destruction, but also through imagining and redirecting towards something new. What's that, though? Who knows? It's imagining. Negative thinking doesn't have solutions. Communism doesn't know how. Feminist Futures Male Feminist Viruses When envisioning the future priorities for women's studies, ones that take advantage of women's studies as a dangerous, infectious, potentially radical force of change, we posit two new directions for the field to embrace. First, training both female and male students as viruses could prove especially useful in articulating the mission and goals of the field. There are clearly different stakes in the feminist pedagogical work directed toward female students versus male students, 
While female students must work to understand their own experiences as women and to deconstruct, critically analyze, and understand the ways that their identities as women map onto other privileges and oppressions, they often at least sense the impact of oppression and privilege in their lives. Male students, on the other hand, may have had little or no exposure to thinking about their own male privileges at all, particularly for white men who may perceive themselves to be victimized by feminist critiques and classroom discussions. While men of color and gay men may differently understand concepts of privilege and oppression, white heterosexual men may arrive at the examination of privilege with little to no experience in examining such personal, personal aspects of their lives and identities. The danger of challenging white men, for example, to recognize and critique their own and other men's privileges may be different than teaching women to recognize and critique their privileges and oppressions, precisely because whiteness, heterosexuality, and maleness are not oppressed classes and thus are not subjected to the consciousness of oppressed classes. Sorry, no Gnosticism, no Gnostic uh, knowledge for you, white, straight men. Only uh, the oppressed get Gnostic knowledge. They only get, they're the only ones with the magic seeing stones. The methods used to discover their own privilege may prove critical to the virulent capacity of women's studies programs seeking to infect male-dominated institutions. We need, this is a biological term, sneaky fuckers to go get into uh, other fields and they have to, we have to create literally beta men that go and uh, sneak in and, and infect other things. That's literally what they're arguing for here. Men may more readily listen to mimic and follow their male feminist peers than they would their female feminist peers. Let me just go back here a second. Two new directions for the field to embrace. Just to summarize what we're talking about here for a second. Training both female and male students as viruses could prove especially useful in articulating the missions and goals of the field. Training students as viruses. Top goal. Okay. Really need to get men because other men, well, we want to infect male-dominated fields and male-dominated fields are going to listen to apparently beta men, I mean um, feminist men, more than they're going to listen to feminist women. The potentially dangerous impact of men as feminist viruses exists for multiple reasons. First, people rarely expect men to hold or propagate feminist viewpoints, particularly in spaces where they act with, interact with other men. Second, corporate universities often assume that the fusion between patriarchy and capitalism will receive the least challenge from its most privileged students, for example, white, heterosexual, upper-class men. Third, men can gain access to spaces that exclude women. I don't know where those are anymore. There are spaces that exclude men, but I don't know of any that exclude women. And especially feminist women. And they can therefore, or they can thereby, I'm sorry, disrupt the notion of in-groups, dominance, and hierarchy. They believe that there's these smoke-filled rooms everywhere that, you know, the men are keeping the girls out. But the data actually show the opposite. Everywhere we, women go, they find men helping them try to succeed. It's exactly the opposite. It's usually women that are trying to keep other women out because of probably uh, intersexual competition. Intrasexual competition. They're afraid that other women are going to steal up what few men there are there as potential mates. And finally, men with feminist politics are often assumed to be relatively innocuous. <laughs> yeah, that's why there's that whole thing where it's like they're like rapists and sexual abusers and jerks because they're assumed to be relatively innocuous jokes about men in women's studies classes quote wanting to get laid or men quote already knowing about women help to contribute to this illusion so they're going to manipulate this illusion that weak men are weak uh, to, and safe therefore 
Thus, when men become feminist viruses infecting and unsettling spaces where their privilege and dominance is assumed, the potential danger and impact is keenly felt. You'll notice that this worked on the Democrats with safe, sleepy Uncle Joe in the last election. Embracing, quote, negative stereotypes. As a second goal for feminist futures, working to embrace so-called negative stereotypes of feminist professors may also give women's studies a distinct advantage as it evolves and changes over time. If the field of women's studies produces a variety of emotions and effective experiences in others, panic, anger, trivialization, mockery, fear, this suggests that distancing women's studies from its stereotypes does little to alleviate or address the emotional reactions from others. Rather, by directly embracing the stereotypes of feminist professors as scary or man-hating, lesbian, hairy, and so on, it it allows the field to both Utilize and expose these emotional experiences as material for learning and growth. In other words, the wound-collecting process is set to full. In short, by engaging in a public relations campaign, that's all they do, by engaging in a public relations campaign to promote the idea that feminism is for everybody or that feminism is not actually dangerous or scary, women's studies loses some of its potential pedagogical impact. Unsettling previously held assumptions, challenging previously held worldviews, and equipping students to critically engage with traditional gender roles and beyond require that women's studies professors focus less attention on the stereotypes they confirm or disconfirm. Anything that radically upsets and challenges power will be met with intense and often negative emotions. Yeah, try standing up to the woke. You'll see all about it. Choosing to embrace this fact and not seek distance from such stereotypes will ultimately lead to a more powerful and coherent feminist presence both within and outside of the academy. That's the paper. The end. So, we have in this paper, no joke, feminist scholars, or we could just say woke scholars more generally, critical social justice scholars across the board poll this, and activists, positioning themselves as a virus, positioning resistance to them, well, say a, a virus that infects, corrupts, uses whatever it infects to create more of itself to then go infect and corrupt more things. They hold this up as an ideal. And if it's a virus, it leaves some of its DNA behind. It leads to causing cancer. That's even better because that's permanent transformational change. They bring up wholesome viruses like HIV, SARS, and Ebola as uh, examples of their, their ideal feminist pedagogy. They say that this is what they should lean into and that the things that resist them are the immune system. And somehow the immune system is the bad guy. And this is how they conceive of themselves. This is how woke ideology conceives of itself as a infectious viral agent meant to infect, corrupt, transform, give cancer to other institutions. Any institution it can work its way in. The church should be asking itself, why on earth are they letting this have a seat at the table? That's their argument right now. Well, critical race theory is bad. The Southern Baptist Convention was finally pressured by somebody uh, in his work um, into having to admit. But let's at least give it a seat at the table because it'll throw a fit if we don't. Let's at least hear it out or we'll fall into the trap that it's laid for us. Because when we resist it directly, it'll throw a fit and it'll, it'll manipulate people. Let's bring the virus to the table. Let's bring it in. That's the that's what's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention right now. That's what's going on in other church organizations that are starting to, starting to try to stand up to this. We have to bring the viral infectious agent into our space. What happens when you bring a virus into an enclosed space? 
just think about it for five seconds. You know what's going to happen. Don't bring it in. This is happening in medicine. This is happening in the military. This is happening throughout the government. This is already all through academia and our schools. It's, those are basically gone. We have to recover our schools. Academia might just have to burn down. I don't know what else to say. The virus is completely endemic. In fact, the virus is basically all that there is. They say they're not going to kill the host. Harvard University's brand is a joke now after like a year. Like, seriously, they're going to kill the host. The New York Times brand is a joke now after like a year and a half. They're going to kill the host. And our society is the ultimate host. And they're going to burn that down too. They don't have the capacity to do anything else. They conceive of themselves this way. You have to think of yourself then in response as the immune system. And the immune system has to push that out. Right now, you don't want the cytokine storm. That's my metaphor now for a war. I know that I said Trump was a cytokine storm. We're switching metaphors a little bit. Now, this breaking out into a, an actual war to push these people out, we need to use every legal means necessary. We need to apply reason. We need to demand evidence. We need to say that vague reimagining, blah, 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 jargon is not good enough. We have to put them, we have to hold them to the responsibility. If they want to enact a certain a certain thing, we need to make them do it. They don't want to do it. They want other people to do it. Make them do it and hold them responsible. If you're in a company, fire them. If they, if they want more of a particular demographic hired, tell them they have to go find them and fire them. If they can't do it, they'll quit. They don't want to do it. They don't know how. So there are actually th this is actually very important we have to think of ourselves as the immune system we have to be smart we have to not be excessive we don't need to flood our body with tnf alpha and give ourselves such a high fever or whatever that we die we have to try to have an appropriate immune response that targets the virus the way that it's supposed to be and i'm not calling them a virus because i want to call them a virus i would rather not even though it's a pretty good they are right actually they're they're exactly right it's the ideal metaphor for what they're doing so we have to beat this virus we have to understand it polish proverb i keep saying it fits particularly strongly here do not attempt to cure what you don't understand so you have to understand what's going on you have to understand their ideology you have to understand the ways that they move say it's dialectically or whatever you have to understand their manipulations and tricks you have to develop smart immune system type uh, strategies for combating these things that's how you have to think about this they think about themselves as a virus start thinking of yourself as the immune system